know there's been great suspense wondering what will we be preaching on when we get into the new building. Will we continue with Revelation? Or will we take a little temporary time out and move on to something uh, appropriate for the season and move back into Revelation? We've chosen the latter. We will continue with Revelation. We will pick it up in a couple of weeks, but we're going to look at a particular passage that's appropriate for the time in which we are now. And that is in a new building era. So if you would, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 16. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20. But let's start with once upon a time, shall we? Once upon a time, there was a man in a big city. And this man in a big city, he had a vision for God's glory to extend beyond this big city to a smaller city. A, a city where a major university was situated. And he prayed specifically for this to happen, though it was not on any official vision chart or any official plans in terms of mission. But he began to pray for it to happen. What others saw in this particular area as an area that doesn't need another church. In fact, it's, it's called Jerusalem on the Brazos to the locals. It's an overchurched area. It's an area where people would think, let's not waste any more spiritual resources in spiritual Disneyland, shall we? But this particular person saw this area having a tremendous gospel need. He saw it as having a very spiritually strategic place for sending out laborers all over the world. In fact, he saw that this area could be a gospel sending center. Is the way he saw it. Now as he was praying for that, he also started praying for well, what person would God have go down there. And he had one in particular in mind, and so he prayed for that person. And then one day he finally decided to make God's will known to the young man. So he approached this young man, and he said, I'm praying that God sends you to a plant a church in this particular city. And then he names that city. Now this very debonair and... Very handsome and very gifted and very sharp and full of faith young man, seminary student, said, no way, don't pray that. I'm not going there, right? Well, two years went by and now momentum began to develop in this church actually coming into being in this smaller city just south of this big city. It now was on committees, and people were getting excited about it, and resources were being put into it, and now it was going to be one of the first church plants that were going to start throughout the Southwest. And now it just happens that providentially this particular person had graduated from seminary, and he was officially challenged to plant this church. Well, seven years later, a church is being built. And seven years later, the vision of a gospel-driven church and a gospel sending center is becoming a reality. Right? There are hundreds of us over these seven years that have been revived and reformed by the worth and work of Jesus. There's been hundreds of us and many of us that have become good churchmen and church women, women that have gone all over the world with a grace-driven and gospel-gripped character. Right? Many have come to faith in Christ. 
Many families have become little redemptive communities, learning to, to be a community for the first time, because community is not a natural thing to anyone. But when the grace of God and the gospel begins to shape us, it actually begins to create that kind of reality. You can't find it in yourself. If you do, you ruin community. We all know that. But it's beginning to take place. Many folks have become unshockable, meaning that we're not shocked at sin in our midst. And we're not shocked when sinners actually acknowledge that they're sinners in our midst. And instead of moving away from someone, an unshockable person actually moves towards them as a fellow sinner, leading them to the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Hundreds, well, we've had two missionaries go to China. Several missionaries are now in waiting to see what the Lord would send to them. We have missions work that's developing in Nigeria. There's been many churches that have been planted throughout the Southwest that this particular church has been a part of. There are four campus ministers that have come out of this particular church. There are two seminary graduates, three in pastorates, three seminarians, two apprentices. We begin to get the picture. And today, the vision to be an anchor church in Central Texas is actually starting to take place. Does this story sound familiar? There's an anonymous pen, and the person said this. He said, Christianity has a way of beginning in a catacomb with nothing but a message, and then ending in a cathedral with nothing but money. How does Redeemer Presbyterian Church continue with nothing but a message? Huh? Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Again, we acknowledge that we lack seeing and we lack heart. And we ask that you would give both. We ask that you would ride on the wind of your word by the power of your spirit to exalt Jesus and expose Jesus to us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, there are three ways to build a church. Three. The first way is that we build our own church. We make much of ourselves. We make much of our vision. We make much of our church. We make much of our programs. We make much of our community. We make much of our how-tos. We make much of many things. 
our preaching, our teaching. We make much of all the things that go on in our church. That's one way to build a church. Another way is we build God's church. We work hard, and we strive, and we sweat, and there's no slackers in this particular vision. We build God's church, and it might mean we small group it, and it might mean we mission it, and it might mean we program it, and it might mean we contextualize it, and it might mean we emerge it, and it might mean we even preach it and teach it, and it might mean we theologize it, and it might mean we reform it. But we're building it. The third way is like an... The third way could be a stunning. You've wondered why we had that big cornfield out there. Well, the third way would be as stunning as if an extraterrestrial alien landed his spaceship out there in that cornfield. The third way is that stunning to us. And it's that shocking and it's that out of context today. The third way is this. We don't build the church at all. We don't build it at all. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The third way is that we don't build the church at all is that Jesus builds his own church. And what needs to happen is third way that as we move into a, a new building era of what God has done and what God is doing in our midst, we need to get our hands and our hearts around this reality of Jesus' confession that he will build this church. And that's what this passage is here to actually do. This passage is here to actually pry your hands off other things Put them on Jesus' confe- confession that I will build my church. And it's here to actually cause you to feel the power of what that really means. In fact, when I was in high school, uh, I volunteered to work a jackhammer. Uh, a particular coach that I was working for, my employer, we were in pool construction and we were going to jack up all the cement around the pool. And I watched him do it and I thought, that man's much older than I am and he's much heavier than I am. This should be no problem. So I volunteered to do the jackhammer. They see, he gave me the jackhammer with a grin as wide as his face. He handed it to me and he said, are you ready? And I said, yeah, no problem. And he flipped the switch. And it was like a horse, a multi-million dollar stallion starting out of a starter's gate. And the handle dug itself deep into my stomach, almost coming out my back. And every muscle in my arms, in my shoulders, in my neck, in my back, in my stomach, in my legs kicked into gear. I felt like I was trying to hold down the Terminator Part 5. <laughs> and for a whole week, my, my body shook from my teeth to my toes. This passage is so powerful. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he's handing you a jackhammer. And it literally is to shake you and me from our teeth down to our toes. It's to shake us in such a way that we actually believe it. And it's to shake us in such a way that we don't just, we come to intellectually understand it, but the reality of the belief digs itself deep into the 
fabric of the way we look at reality, the way we actually think about things and the way we actually feel about things. It comes to us in such a way that we actually own it. It impacts us and shakes our teeth down to our toes so much that we love it. And we actually conform to it and we begin to rejoice in it. And we find strength and hope in it. And it actually empowers us and strengthens us for what God has for us. It is such a powerful truth when we get our hearts and our hands around this powerful truth. It actually deeply transforms us. And it actually causes us to pray. And leads us to have compassion for others. And it moves us out to actually seek the Lord to be an instrument in His hands. It pushes us and shapes us in such a way that we have meaningful conversations about Jesus with the biker. And we have meaningful conversations about with people we wouldn't normally sit in the same room with. That we have meaningful conversations about Jesus with our children. We have meaningful conversations with people that have never heard about Jesus at all. This is an incredible, powerful truth. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at four powerful truths over the next couple of weeks in Jesus' confession. And we're going to start with one right now that's supposed to shake us from our teeth down to our toes. And here's the first powerful truth in Jesus' confession, I will build my church. It's this, Jesus is the hero king of the church. If you look in verse 17, or actually, yeah, 17, where... In 16, where Peter gives the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to unpack that a little bit, but what we need to hear right now, in our language, it means he's the hero king of the church. It all started a long time ago. And the picture of these words transport us to a world a long time ago. And when you come to the scriptures like a passage like this, I think sometimes we hear that, oh yes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we bring in our meaning, and we bring in our categories for understanding what that word actually means. And we miss the power in it because we're filling it with our understanding and the contextual understanding of the church today. And so sometimes we need to, to crack open that word and see how it was used in the Old Testament. And when we begin to see how it was used in the Old Testament, it actually infuses life and power for us right now. So it's kind of like this. In hearing about a story, we begin to find our place in the story. If we start with our story and try to make Jesus' story fit into our story, we mess up everything. And the, the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty and the power of what these truths actually say get watered down in the process. So, the story of this phrase actually began a long time ago. It began with an army facing another army. And there was a great plane that separated the two armies. And this one particular army was called the Philistines. And at the back of the Philistines was the land of milk and honey. But you had to get through the Philistines 
to get to the land of milk and honey. And in particular, you had to get through a giant who was the real incarnation of an army of one. A massive man named Goliath. Now, Israel's heart facing this army and Israel's heart when facing this giant melted like wax. The king turned yellow. And all hope and all expectation of obtaining the land of milk and honey, of having joy and laughter in God's place with God's people, of actually seeing the, the fruits and the realities of the kingdom of God pushed out into their lives, began to recede and all hope began to go away. And then we know the rest of the story, don't we? And we know that there was an anointed boy who walked all alone through the ranks of the Israelite army. I mean, if you were there, even the horses watched. And tens upon thousands of soldiers and animals and equipment were silent. And one lone boy, an anointed boy, walked through the ranks towards the giant. And all hung on one man. One. The land of milk and honey, the kingdom of God, or bondage, slavery, darkness, distress, and death. Right? Well, the silence was broken real quickly when he broke through, when he walked through the ranks, because when the giant saw him, the silence was filled with crude cursing and comments like, Am I a dog? And you will be vermin food very shortly. And then you can imagine what the ranks of Philistines, when they saw this boy walk out, what they began to do. They could smell it. They could taste it. It was victory as clear as day as if a boy walked out and said he was going to fight a giant. And then, there was an eerie silence. And we're talking about not the earthly kind of silence but an unearthly silence, the kind of silence that originates in heaven, descended on the battlefield as a giant hit the dust. And a hero king rose up from the dust. And you know what the text says? All Israel shouted. One man did it. A hero king. Well, several years later, this hero king ends up dying. And when that happened, Israel began to stumble. And Israel stumbled so much in their sin, they actually fell on their face and they couldn't get back up anymore. The kingdom got divided. There were captivities that happened. It was a complete time in which the, the land of milk and honey, the realities of the kingdom of God, God's favor in his treasures, the realities of laughter and joy amongst God's people and God's place, 
again began to so fade that the story of it actually began to be almost fairy taleish as a parent would talk to another parent about the times of the kingdom of God, the realities of a great hero king that rescued God's people and ushered in a time of milk and honey in God's place, the children actually began to sing, What are you talking about, Mom? Dad? That can't be true. Are these your fairy tales that you tell yourself at night just so you can feel better? Well, then in walked these guys that were called spokesmen for God, and they were called prophets. And they came in and they started talking about another hero king coming. And they talked about another hero king who would be the final hero king. And that he would actually be descending from David. And that he's called, we're going to call him the anointed one. Yes, like David, he was anointed, but you know he's even greater than David. And yes, like David and David's dynasty, where they had this special sonship relationship where those that sat on the throne in David's lines were actually called sons of God. This will be the son of God. He will actually be called the Messiah in Hebrew. And when the Greeks came in and translated, it will be called the Christ. And what he will do is he will crush all the kingdoms and all the Goliaths that stand in the way of the milk and honey. And then we get to Matthew 16 and we get to 13, 17. Let's look at this together. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Another term for the Messiah, the Christ, the Hero King. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Isn't it interesting? That when left to our own understanding, we will shape and form an understanding of Jesus that always misses the mark. And that's why we need what takes place in 17, which is a father who knows the son to actually reveal him to us. Or we will shape a Jesus according to our own wants and our own expectations and our own desires. Right? Alright, so he comes in and he says to him, but who do you say that I am? Because that's what he's most concerned about right now. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessing to you, son. And what we have here is the hero king has come. The long-awaited one has come. The one that descends from David has come. And how do we know this? Because we know he, he says it himself. And this is a very interesting saying. Don't miss this in verse 17. When, when he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, what he's saying to Peter is not that blessed are you or happy are you, Peter. May you have a happy state now. He's not saying to Peter, happiness to you, a tranquil, peaceful state be to you. What he's saying to you is he's saying to Peter, he's saying, blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you because all which prevents, all which keeps you from the land of milk and honey has now been removed because I am the one you just said. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Living God. I am the Hero King. And I will crush every kingdom. And I will crush every Goliath that keeps you 
and keeps my people from entering into the promised land. I am him. And blessed are you. Because you can have the milk and honey now. You can partake of the kingdom of God. And what's so fascinating about this is where he actually reveals this ultimate, climactic revelation of Jesus' identity. Do you know where he goes? He leaves Jewish territory and he he travels 25 miles or 1,500 feet above sea level to the most pagan area in all the territories at that time that was the the promised land or the land of uh, Israel at that time. So he goes 25 miles north. He leaves Jewish territory and he goes into densely populated, unbelieving, pagan territory. He goes up to one of near the ancient cities of Dan and there's a cave up there where they... The Greeks worship the goddess of Pan. And he actually goes into the very areas where the northern tribes of Israel never were able to drive out the occupied Canaanites. He goes to that part of the kingdom of God, the promised land of God that was to flow with milk and honey. And those northern tribes never pushed out the enemies of God. And they never pushed out those that were outside the kingdom of God at the time. So he goes into the very area where Gentiles and unbelieving Gentiles have a stronghold. And basically what he's doing, he goes into the very heart of what he would say in that text, the gates of hell, and makes his announcement that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. So he goes into the darkest areas. And he goes into the most unbelieving area. And he gives his most climactic revelation of who he is. I am the king. And everything that stands in the way of the land of milk and honey will crush. Okay? Now, how should this shake you? What should this do to us? I mean, we, we begin to grab this powerful truth. Okay, Jesus is the hero king. How should it shake us? How should it shake you from your teeth to your toes? What should it do to you? Because all the scripture does something to us. What should it do to us? First thing it should do to us, it should make us realize very, very personally that we cannot save ourselves. That the Goliath between you and the land of the milk and honey is too big for you. Your sin and my sin is too big in the way for us to get into the land of milk and honey. And our guilt is too big to keep us into the land of the milk and honey. And the corruption and the slavery to our own corruption is too big for us. In fact, David Pallison puts it this way. He says, we have an addiction to telemarketing ourselves to ourselves and to other people. In other words, we do things like this. I just want a little respect and appreciation, he says. Of course I want the home and appliances to work, and I want the car mechanic to be honest. That's pretty normal. I want approval and understanding. Is that too much to ask? I want the church to thrive and the sermon to go well. It's God's work, of course. I want satisfaction and compensation for the ways others didn't be wrong. I don't want much. If only I had better health, if I had a little more money and a more meaningful job and nicer clothes and a restful vacation, then I'd be satisfied. 
I want a measure of success. Just a bit of recognition. As an athlete, as a beauty, as an intellectual, as a musician, as a leader, as a mother. I want control. I want to feel good. Doesn't God want me to feel good? I want to have more self-confidence. I want to believe in myself. I want, well, I want the goodies. I want it all. I want glory. I want God to do my will. I want to be like God. And what he says is we telemarket it, we make it look good, but in the bottom line, that's what we end up doing. And that, in us, is too big. It's too big for us to try to remove. We can't do it. And we can't slay that giant with a sincere heart. Many times today, I know we do, I know I do, I think if I have a sincere heart, that'll move the giant out of the way. We always think there's something we can at least put up of ourselves before God that he will look down and smile at, and then we can be satisfied with. We try to put forward something in front of God that he thinks or he approves or he accepts. We think maybe a God experience that we're going to have, and that's going to help slay the giant, remove the way so that we can enter into the land of milk and honey. And Jesus said to his father, while we're trying and striving to save ourselves, Jesus says to the father, while we're in our corruption and in our sin, Jesus says to the father, while we're striving and fighting, he says to the father, I'll go fight Goliath. I'll remove the giant that keeps him in the way and keeps her in the way from entering the promise. And then Jesus comes to Peter and he tells his disciples, and of course he's telling us the most climactic part of his ministry, I am the hero king. And I'm the one that will slay the giant of your sin. And I'm the one that will lead you into the land of milk and honey. And so the way this shakes us is this. We need to do what Israel did when David walked out. We need to watch him. And we need to put all of our hope in him. And even now it might be for the first time that we begin to realize this, but it it means this for you and me as well. We get noise in our hearts because our hearts are noisy. They're noisy and full of ourselves, and they're noisy and full of our dominating desires, and they're noisy and full of all kinds of things because... Sin will not go away in this life. If you are a Christian and if you've been believed and united to Christ, I've got incredible bad news for you. Your sin doesn't go away. And so it stays there in indwelling power, constantly trying to put itself between you and the promised land. And Jesus has removed it, but it's always a fight. And what we need to do is we get full of noise. We need to quiet our soul and put put our roots deep down and make our soul hope in him alone to remove the giant and to get us into the promised land.
And we need to do that for the first time, and we need to do that for the hundredth time, and we need to do that for the millionth time. We need to watch him do it for us, and we need to make our soul rest in his work. The also what we need to do, how this should shake us, is that we need to taste the milk and honey right now. Jesus removes everything that stands in the way between the milk and honey. Everything. So it's almost like we forget that. And we keep thinking that there's still something out there that needs to be done. We think that there's some other work still out there that needs to be done so that I can get the milk and honey. And that's why we keep putting ourselves before God, thinking that there's something I do. Maybe it means I adjust my will a certain way. I surrender in a certain way. I yield in a certain way. And that will get me into the land of milk and honey. Maybe we think again we need to have some sort of moving experience with God. Or I need a second work of his work in my life. We need something still to be done that's out there that gets me into the land of milk and honey. And the way this passage shapes you and me is it says to you, no, right now, taste the milk and honey. Because it's not a work out there to be done, it's a work that's already done. And so what you do now is you believe it. And when you believe it, you begin to taste the milk and honey. And that means you begin to taste right now the reality that he has forgiven you. And you can taste right now the milk and honey that he's given you, his own perfection of his own son wrapped around you that you haven't done a thing to earn. But on that basis alone, the smile of God never leaves his face when he looks at you. Pardon, perfection, and even right now, you get his presence. You can taste the honey and the milk of his presence that when he says, Lo, I'll be with you to the very ends of the age, because Jesus is the hero king and he removed all obstacles and everything that stands in the way of milk and honey, you can believe that right now and you can, you can hang on to that right now and you can anchor your soul into it right now. He is with you and his presence is with you, regardless of how you feel. And regardless of the situation and the circumstances you're going through, and regardless of the conflict you have with your spouse on the way over here, and regardless of the tension you have with your children, and regardless of whatever's going on at your job, and regardless of whatever sin you're struggling with, you can taste the milk and honey right now because the work's been done. One other thing we can taste in the milk and honey, we can taste the reality of his powerful presence with his spirit actually at work helping us along the way. And this might be one that we forget about. But right now, he has given you his spirit powerfully to be with you, to actually help you believe these things and help you trust in these things and help you move forward in new life and new obedience and help you move forward in resolving the conflict you just had and helping you speak the truth honestly to someone that you need to and helping you receive the instruction and the rebuke of someone else and helping you grow in grace. He gives you his spirit now because the work's been done. So do you see what's happening here? There is not another work out there that you need to do in order to get these things to you. You don't need to go to a seminar and read a particular book. You don't need to go and have another work of the Holy Spirit done in your life and then assign to the companies if it says you got it. You don't need that. 
Jesus has done it. Now all we do is believe it. Okay? In 1927, there was a Sudan Interior Missions called SIM. They sent missionaries to evangelize the wild tribe of the Walamos in Ethiopia. Now, a little Bible trivia, the Walamos or Ethiopia have a long history in Christianity, doesn't it? It goes all the way back to Philip in Acts 8 that Ethiopia is first mentioned. There's over 60 references in the scriptures alone to Ethiopia. Well, these folks in 1927 went to one of the hardest places in the world to actually proclaim Jesus and bring this message of a hero king to them. And as they go to this particular area, the Walamos were worshippers of Satan. And what they would do is they would sacrifice live bulls. They would spread the blood over the doorposts, sound familiar, of their houses. And then all the family would be inside and they would eat the raw flesh of the bull. All in worship and devotion to Satan and to demons. You know, I, I often wonder when I hear stories like this, I wonder, what was the first conversation like when the missionaries told their spouse or told their kids or had that, you know, that conversation about, we're going to go to the Wallamos people, David. Yes, Father, what are the Wallamos people like? Well, they worship Satan. <laughs> or your spouse, and what does she say? Or what, is, what does the husband say? You can't go there. Do you know how dangerous it is? What about our kids, honey? We might lose one. I mean, they don't have electricity. They don't have any of the modern conveniences. So they go to the Wallamos people, and after nine years of hard labor, of working, of wondering if they were ever going to make it, there are 48 new believers in nine years, a small church. And just when they start to think things are really going and they're very satisfied in their work and they feel very good about what God is doing, World War II erupts. And in 1937, Mussolini invades Ethiopia with his Italian troops. And they come to these remote villages and they find these missionaries and they say you must leave now and so the missionaries pack up everything and they begin to leave and they have one last meeting with the Wallamos people and as they meet with them they look out and they see these 48 smiling faces they worship with them for the last time they observe communion together for the last time they beseech the Lord together for the last time and then they leave and then on April 17, 1937 the 48 Wallamos people are on their own for the first time and these Italian troops come in and they want to stomp out the church. And so they round up all the church leaders and they start whipping them in public. Everyone received 100 lashes. One guy received 400 lashes. Nobody could sleep on their backs for a month. Several of them died. One guy, his name was Wanduro, he was beaten in public and he preached to the crowds between the lashes. Another game named Toro was stripped naked in the marking place and he was flogged with hippo hide. And between the lashes he proclaimed the gospel. To the shock of everybody, conversion started multiplying. And they actually started sending missionaries all over Ethiopia. 
Now, six years later, these missionaries come back. In 1943, not knowing what to expect. And all of them in their public and in their private conversations said things like, it won't, it won't work. They're never going to make it. And when they came back, they had 18,000 Walamos Christians to greet them. 48 to 18,000 six short years. What did that? Their vision statement? Their trying to be nice, and I am nice. If you don't know me, I am a nice guy. But if you know me and you don't know me, I'm an upfront guy too. Um, did they try to small group it? Did they try to emerge it? Did they try to uh, incorporate it with new business principles? Did they try? You get the picture. No. They didn't build God's church. Jesus did. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for I am the one. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. I am the Hero King promised long ago. I will remove everything that gets in the way between you and the land of the milk and honey. I will build my church. I will do it. Just watch me.